The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I am Cheryl Cheryl Jones, and I'm happy to have you with me today. Spending this time with you, the listeners, every week is one of my deepest pleasures. So please go to my website, weatheringgrief.com, that's with two Gs, to let me know how the show has impacted you. I really love hearing from the listeners and uh, finding out a little bit about your stories. Today I'm talking with Katie Butler. Katie is an award-winning journalist who's written for The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. After eight years as her parents' part-time caregiver and full-time medical advocate, she wrote the best-selling memoir, Knocking on Heaven's Door, The Path to a Better Way of Death, a lyrical memoir of the redemptive power of familial love and a passionate argument for better end-of-life medicine. It explores how difficult the good death has become in an era of advanced medical technology part memoir part investigating investigative reporting and part spiritual guide it was named a new york times notable book of 2013 the san francisco chronicle called it a lyrical meditation on death written with extraordinary beauty and sensitivity. I really agree with that. Katie has lectured at Harvard Medical School and medical centers around the country, and you can find out more about her at katiebutler.com. That's K-A-T-Y butler.com. Welcome, Katie. Thank you. Very nice to be with you, Cheryl. Oh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be with you and have this hour together. As, as you know, I read your book right about when I began hosting this show, and now we're finally sitting down to have this conversation. I feel honored and, and privileged and happy to be here to talk with you. Great. Thank you. Um, I, I also just want you to know that there's, there's a way that your book in, uh, helped me in retrospect. My father had died... Uh, previous to reading your book, and I had some regrets because he actually had a stroke. He he fell. Um, he died of the fall, but it's pretty clear he had a stroke before that uh-huh. um, because someone saw him looking badly trying to get home. And I had regretted not having that time with him, and, and your book helped me to come to terms with that. Yes, you know, I think there are no perfect deaths, and that as a culture... We have a great deal of faith in progress and control, and I think death is the great mystery, and probably deaths always come too soon or too late, that very rarely does anyone time, does a de- is a death timed perfectly. So mm. I think it's not unusual for people to either regret that someone has died too soon or else look back and regret at how long 
that death was prolonged sometimes by advanced medical technologies that really have erased the bright line between extending a life and simply prolonging a death or prolonging suffering. So I think it's not unusual. I think it's always hard to experience a death and to experience the loss and the loss of control. Um, At least we have the comfort of knowing that we have lots and lots of company. Absolutely. And also, you know, reading your book, as, as we'll talk about your father, you know, having had a stroke and then living a a, a long time after that and the ways right. in which that was uh, too long <laughs> in some sense, I, I sort of came to feel that my father, who was similar uh, to yours in kind of being an intellectual, being very uh, brain-oriented, um, big reader, thinker, all that, <clears throat> he would have hated it, actually. Yes, I, I think... Um in my own family, my dad had a major stroke at 79 that left him unable to fasten a belt or really finish a sentence with any ease. And sometimes I look back and I think maybe it would have been better for him and certainly for my mother if he had actually died of the stroke. But in other ways, I don't think it would have been better for me because after the stroke, I had a very clear understanding that my dad was going to die sometime, even though I had no idea when. And it allowed me to do things like write him legacy letters. I wrote him for a full year. I wrote him about everything he'd done for me, like Mm. reading Barbara the Elephant to me, teaching me to read, teaching me to swim. So we were really able to rekindle the kind of love that we'd had for each other when I was, let's say, five or six. And so Mm -hmm. for me, having been put on notice, in a sense, by this catastrophic stroke, we were able to do a lot of healing of our relationship. And so when he finally did die, I think I was very much at peace with his death. So, you you know, I love that the subject of your whole program is grief because we just don't know what gifts we're going to get out of these extremely painful situations. And as you know, I really do feel my father's dying process went on way, way too long, six and a half years into dementia and near blindness. But there were certain gifts, and I think from the healing point of view, it's important for me to always remember those. And, of course, your your impassioned work now about that ultimately did come out of that experience too, wouldn't you say? Yeah, in essence, I do a lot of speaking now, both at medical schools and at end-of-life coalitions in communities. And my passion is to help doctors and families develop a common language for what I call the gray zone, that gray area between living and dying, which often extends for weeks or months or even years now. And essentially I feel that we're a victim of our own technologies, that medical technologies did such a marvelous job of ending premature and unexpected death that we've now unfortunately developed a faith in them that they're going to be able to keep death at bay forever. And there's really a law of diminishing returns, because when you start to get old and fragile, uh, the technologies do you less and less good, they have less and less payoff, 
and the risks rise enormously. Risks of, you know, if you, I think of it as Humpty Dumpty syndrome when people mm. either have a severe chronic illness or they're aging, they're in their 70s, 80s, or 90s. They're like Humpty Dumpty, and if you knock them off the wall, they can't, like your dad, you know, they have a fall. They can't be put back together again. And so for those of us who are their caregivers or their medical advocates, there's a point where we need to become vigilant. And it sounds odd to say, but sometimes the most loving thing to do is to say no more surgery or no more hospitalization and to actually do your best to keep someone you love out of the hospital rather than take them there repeatedly. You know, I feel as if this section that you were going to share uh, about actually right at the beginning um, sort of captures the pain of all that quite well. I wondered if you'd share that now. Okay, I would love to. So this is starting from, I reached my, Jonathan, my youngest brother. Mm Mm-hmm, yes. Okay, so I just want to set it up a little bit for the listeners. Thanks. My dad has this major stroke. I get a call from my mother in California. I'm in California. They're in Connecticut. I get a call from my mother. She's weeping in a way I have never heard her weep before. And she tells me my dad's had a stroke. And I then call my two brothers who also live in California because I'm about to jump on a plane. I reach Jonathan, my youngest brother, in the garage of his shared rented house in the Southern California desert. He was living on his tax refund taking a break from driving 18-wheelers across the country. 46, bright and dyslexic, my, my mother, with no education beyond high school. He was intensely practical, the kind of person you'd want next to you in an earthquake or a hurricane. He could embroider an American flag on the back of a Levi's jacket, pilot a loaded semi through the Grapevine Canyon, and navigate a sailboat along the rocky Maine coast. But he lived from paycheck to paycheck and had long felt that our father had neglected him as a child, dismissed him as an academic failure, and didn't value his mechanical skills or his 17 years of hard-won sobriety. In any case, this wasn't Jonathan's kind of natural disaster. I've seen it over and over, he would tell me years later when I asked why he hadn't come. Everyone jumps on an airplane, they go to the emergency room, and they stand there together for hours drinking shitty coffee out of the vending machine. They do it out of guilt. They become a burden, and they accomplish nothing. And so it turned out that only my mother and I sat on the empty second bed in my father's hospital room in Connecticut, facing the wreckage of a man whom we desperately loved and whose future we could not know. Stripped of his spotless white shirt and nice tweed jacket, he was in a wheelchair, catheterized and naked beneath a pale hospital gown, a member of the classless fraternity of the stricken. I think I'll just stop that right there. At that point, my dad couldn't speak, and he was looking forward to possibly nothing better than being able to operate a motorized wheelchair with his breath. I I love that expression, the classless fraternity of the stricken. Yeah, because of course I've I've just because of my work I've seen that so often and it's so wrenching, so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. And when my father did recover some speech, he never got really good at speaking again, but he did manage to eke out sentences. One of the things he said to my mother was, 
I don't know who I am anymore. Mm. And then a year after that, he said, I'm not going to get better. And that was after working very hard at speech therapy and physical therapy. And finally, a year or so after that, he said, I'm living too long. I, I that stood out so much when I read the book. I'm living too long. Um, it it very much conjured um, my wife's death. Um, sh- she wasn't actually able to say that, but I recognized it, and yes. it had to make decisions. Uh, you know, the way I would think of it was she had outlived her body. <laughs> you know, yeah, her body yeah. just could not carry her any longer, and yet there it was, still alive at some point. Just a right. terrible kind of moment. It, for it is a terrible moment, and um, I thought of it in terms of my dad as he outlived his happiness. Ah, uh, yeah, and I think as caregivers, we often feel guilty when we experience that recognition and. I look back, and I'm actually very proud of myself for having done everything I could to make sure that my father's suffering was not unduly prolonged, and that I, I mean, I really tried to get medicine to allow him a natural death, but I was unable to do that. But when I look back, I never feel guilty for having advocated for him in that way, but I think it's a really, it's a new experience for the human race, because up until the 1950s or so, the problem was always that people lived too short. It was the rare person that ever lived too long. And so mm-hmm. we're needing to develop a new moral language for a changed medical landscape, which has, frankly, just never occurred on the earth before. Yes, and even, you know, I know my uh, my father's grandmother died in their home. and Right was very uh, was bed bound at the end and all of that but it was not technological right she just you know faded and then she died and i think right. i think back i don't know how that was exactly for him he didn't talk about it that often but i have to think that's so remarkably different it's than- remarkably different 70% of us say we want to die at home but only about the 30% of us do die at home and 20% of us die in intensive care. And I think that is one of the most tragic statistics that I have ever, ever run across. Because do you know anyone who has said to you, I want to die plugged into machines? I mean, that's a very, very... Never. Rare. Never. Anyway. Never. And and it's also very complex because um, my mother died in September, but two or three years ago, she almost died. Mm-hmm. And probably by all rights should have died and she didn't die um, through medical technology yeah. <laughs> honestly and um, had a very uh, interesting last couple of years you uh-huh. know so that's the other side of it that um, well yes and I think this is what makes it so difficult we, none of us can see the future Exactly. Doctors can't see the future. They can tell us what they've seen in the past, but, uh, you know, past performance is not predictive of future results. (laughs) Absolutely. Right? And we don't know. We know even less than them because we haven't seen the number of people that they have seen go through this process. And, And so, at least for me with my family, I really had to trust my 
heart, my intuition, and my gut mm-hmm. about what was the right thing to do here. And that did not make anything any easier. Um, but the thing is, uh, something so uh, compelling about your book is that you and your mother, and I'm assuming your brothers, were all in agreement. Yeah. And you couldn't get medical, you couldn't get the medical profession to help you follow through on what you knew was correct for your father. Yes, I even felt there was some weird calculus, which is that the closer someone was to my dad, the less power they had over a voice in his medical future. And the further the distance, the greater the power. So in my father's case, he had been given a pacemaker when he'd already had this major stroke, and the pacemaker, unfortunately, kept him going into a time when he had no reason to live. And the cardiologist was the one with the most influence because he was the one who understood the technology and could have placed the order to have it deactivated, whereas the family doctor, who knew my dad quite well, was sympathetic with the family, but he didn't have the technological know-how to intervene in any way or the status. And then my mom and I, who were the closest, had the least power of all of those people that I've mentioned. And so that adds a layer of um, not necessarily guilt because you you, right. you didn't have the power, but real agony um, uh, yeah, in not being say, able to yeah. really address what he would have wanted. Yeah, both a sense of powerlessness and, unfortunately, a sense of abandonment by the medical system. I mean, I think now, having written the book, which is called Knocking on Heaven's Door, for anyone who's tuning in late, I think I understand now better the terrifically dysfunctional system that all of these doctors are trapped in, that there is this assumption that they should offer any treatment until finally some family member says, no, we want to stop now. Yeah. And then also there's so much fragmentation in the system and so many strange ways of reimbursing things and not reimbursing things that they're almost pressured and funneled into um, these dysfunctional decisions. So I have Let's much pick that more up after the break. Now. Okay. Let's pick that up after the break because when I heard you speak recently, that really um, compelled me a lot. That that dilemma of of um, coverage, basically. Yeah. Listeners, take these few minutes to go to my host page and connect with me. Uh, if you join my mailing list, you'll get occasional newsletters, information about what I, I'm doing on the show, and to find Katie Butler and her book, go to katiebutler.com. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Katie Butler, journalist and author of Knocking on Heaven's Door, The Path to a Better Way of Death. And we were talking, uh, we began talking right before the break about how the medical system, the broken medical system, I'm sure that won't be a surprise to most of my guests that we would call it broken, um, is making it very, very difficult to avoid the kinds of um, overliving that that happened with your father, kind of living too long, uh, as a result of medical science, and and a lot of the problems of how we, uh, what kind of power we do and don't have over the end of our lives. And uh, I'm hoping you can say more about that. Yes, I'd love to talk about this because I think it's a hidden shaper of our behavior that we have no clue about, and it's shaping our doctor's behavior as well. I want to give you a couple of examples. When my dad was given a pacemaker, the, the surgeon got $750, the hospital got about 12500 of which 7500 went to the device maker, the maker of the pacemaker. But my father's internist was really against this surgery. He thought it would keep my father going too long. But if he'd called my father up and had a meeting and said, look, this, I don't think this is a good idea given your, given your health state and your own values, he would have only been paid $46 to hold that conversation. And he would have been paid absolutely nothing to call the surgeon and the cardiologist and see if they could work out a better, different way 
of getting my father through this hernia surgery, which was the reason the pacemaker was put in in the first place. So that's one example. We underpay doctors for their time, and we overpay them for putting in technologies or running extremely expensive technological testing. And the result is that hospice doctors, palliative care doctors, family medicine doctors are all stunningly underpaid, mm-hmm. while subspecialists like interventional cardiologists make a half a million dollars a year on average. That's just average. Another example from oncology, an oncologist will be paid a 4.8% markup on the price of any chemo that he delivers. Now, this creates an incentive for that doctor to keep using chemo after it's no longer effective and also to pick the most expensive chemo, even if another one that's cheaper will do as well. So this is an extreme burden on Medicare, but on top of it, it creates suffering for people because after two or three different chemos have been tried, the evidence shows that there's really no survival advantage from going on later, and yet people do. So at the same time, that same oncologist will basically be paid nothing at all, practically speaking, to sit down for what might be an hour-long conversation with somebody and really break the news that they've reached the point where just doing more and more chemo is not going to extend their life or improve the quality of their remaining life. So these enormous distortions have created a situation where people have been complaining for 20 or 30 years now about overly medicalized deaths and too much death in the hospital. But we end up on a pathway, on almost a conveyor belt, to this mechanized form of dying because our doctors are not getting paid up front maybe years early to really have these very painful conversations with us. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to um, particularly my wife's doctors because we knew them so intimately. She was sick for so long. Uh-huh. That, that intersects with, you know, let's say you have a really caring and good doctor. Yes. They are feeling quite personally helpless yes and to make the decision to suspend treatment is an emotional issue for them it's huge so so that to me intersects these are the best doctors you know but that would intersect with this try this we've seen this work you know the the impact on them as people of pharmaceutical companies saying, we've got this thing, it's going to help, you know. That's right, that's right. I just feel that's a part of it, too. There's Um, always a cure around the corner in America. Around the corner. And it's always around the corner, you know. Um, Well, and sometimes, I mean, uh, certainly I run cancer groups now, and treatment is much different than it was when she was sick. uh, And improved in some substantial ways. But still, I think there's that, possibility that you'll just keep going and going and going when that's not really the story that's unfolding. Right. And I think there are two types of moral distress that doctors suffer. And one is that because we do have such a successful forms of medicine, experiencing a patient dying becomes an experience for them of feeling like a failure, that they've let the patient down. So that's one type of terrible moral distress that makes it hard for them to hold these conversations. They don't, it's hard for them, they get so invested that they can't admit 
that they've hit the limits of what medicine can do. And then another aspect is that they're simply untrained. They get almost no training in how to have difficult conversations with patients about limits. Mm-hmm. So they get every young doctor cycles through an OBGYN rotation, but very, very few cycle through a palliative care rotation, even though all of yes. our patients are going to die, even though only half of them are going to have babies, you know, potentially. <laughs> yes. So, and then there's another kind of moral distress, and that is suffered by doctors and nurses who work in places like intensive care. And they find themselves in a situation where a patient and a family that they don't know at all has ended up in intensive care. And they may have seen hundreds of 80 and 90-year-olds die in intensive care. And it's so traumatic that sometimes nurses in ICU will be found crying in the corner or the doctors will be under great distress because they're in a situation where the family cannot take in the reality of the approach of death, and they feel quite literally as though they are torturing, they use the word torture, that they are torturing these patients. And of course, the patients cannot express their last wishes, give their final blessings, because they have a tube down their mouth. Yeah, I I interviewed a a doctor over um, near, she actually works at Highland Hospital near me. Yes who's doing a lot, Jessica Zitter, who's doing a lot of work on training physicians to bring up those conversations because it's, you know, they they don't know how to say, this is, we shouldn't be doing this, you know. Um, I want to just um, have you read from Knocking on Heaven's Door, um, the the more, um, the, the impact of all of this we've been talking about, this over-intervention, Yes. Because I think this um, this part of the book really captures what that did to your mother in particular. Um, so you're talking about the part where my mother asks, makes this yeah, request? Yeah, the, the yes. request, yes. Okay, excellent. On an autumn day in 2007, while I was visiting from California, my mother made a request I both dreaded and longed to fulfill. She just poured me a cup of tea from her Japanese teapot, shaped like a little pumpkin. Beyond the kitchen window, two cardinals splashed in her birdbath in the weak Connecticut sunlight. Her white hair was gathered at the nape of her neck, and her voice was low. She put a hand on my arm. Please help me get your father's pacemaker turned off, she said. I met her eyes, and my heart knocked. Directly above us, in what was once my parents' shared bedroom, my 85-year-old father, Jeffrey, a retired professor, stroke-shattered, going blind, and suffering from dementia, lay sleeping. Sewn into a hump of skin and muscle below his right collarbone was the pacemaker that had helped his heart outlive his brain. As small and shiny as a pocket watch, It had kept his heart beating rhythmically for five years. It blocked one path to a natural death. I don't like describing what the thousand shocks of late old age were doing to my father and indirectly to my mother without telling you first that my parents loved each other and I loved them. That my mother could sew a silk blouse from a photo in vogue and make cocovin with her own chicken stock 
that she thought of my father as her best friend, and that my father never gave up easily on anything. Born in South Africa's Great Karoo Desert, he was a 21-year-old soldier in the South African Army when he lost his left arm to a German shell in the Italian hills outside Siena. He went on to marry my mother, earn a Ph.D. from Oxford, build floor-to-ceiling bookcases for our living room, and with my two brothers' crew, sail his beloved Rhodes 19 on Long Island Sound. When I was a teenager and often at odds with him, he would sometimes wake me, chortling lines from the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam in a high falsetto. Awake, my little one, before life's liquor in its cup be dry. And at night he would stand in our bedroom doorways and say goodnight to my two brothers and me, quoting Horatio's farewell to the dying Hamlet. May flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. Now, four decades later, I had to coach him to take off his slippers before he tried to put down, put on his shoes. My mother put down her keyboard, her teacup. She was 83, as lucid and bright as a sword point, and more elegant in her black jeans and thin cashmere sweater than I could ever hope to be. She put her hand hard on my arm. He is killing me, she said. He is ruining my life. She was taking care of my father for about a hundred hours a week. I looked at her and thought of Anton Chekhov, the writer and physician who died of tuberculosis in 1904 when he was only 44. Whenever there is someone in a family who has long been ill and hopelessly ill, he wrote, there come painful moments when all, timidly, secretly, at the bottom of their hearts, long for his death. A century afterwards, my mother and I had come to long for the machine in my father's heart to fail. What I love so much about that is I, your, your parents are so alive in it, okay. not just in that moment, but in their lifetimes. Um, yes. Uh, there's such a strong sense of who they were and how out of sync who they were was with what was happening. Absolutely. And I felt it was so important to give my readers a feeling for what my parents were like before they hit this devastating stage of their lives. Because, I mean, I hate to say it, but as a culture, we don't really honor the elderly or we don't want to look at the sick. And so once a person enters that final stage of life, it's very hard for the average reader to really identify with them. But mm-hmm. So that's where I really wanted to get across the feeling of what vigorous and stoic people they were. I mean, they were not in favor of medical overtreatment. They'd signed living wills and durable powers of attorney for health care. And so they had sort of ended up on this pathway completely by surprise. You know, I've been doing some work with uh, for, with end of life. Uh, I just helped um, do a decision day, which was created in Alameda County to support people having their documents. But I've also realized getting involved with that, that having a document is just not the whole story at all. Um, that, you know, for one thing, it's not typically very nuanced. Um, yes. You know, it's just if it's if this is happening, do that. But what actually happens is much more 
complicated in a way than those simple uh, things. And, you know, the, the most powerful thing we have is someone knowing us well. Exactly. Um, feeling what we would want. But exactly. that gets so discredited. Absolutely. I think these documents are really an excuse or a catalyst for a conversation. There's a wonderful deck of cards out there that I want to mention called Go Wish, and you play them with somebody that you love. And essentially, you rank what's most important to them at the moment of their dying, and then you compare. There's two sets of the cards, so you get to compare and see if you really are on the same page with this person that you love, that you've committed to be their decision maker if they can't make their own. So I think what's really important is the conversation. And I think Mm -hmm. the actual crucial question in the conversation is not, do you want to be plugged into machines if you're within six months of death or comatose? The real question is, what makes your life worth living for you? And if those conditions didn't exist anymore, what types of medical intervention would you want to refuse? Because we all define the meaningful life or the life worth living differently. Absolutely. You need to know, I mean, some people would say, I want to stay alive even if I'm quadriplegic. And other people would say, I don't. And some people would say, as long as I can love and be loved, I'm happy being on this earth. And other people would say, if I have to be physically dependent on another person, I really would suffer and I don't want to prolong my life into that stage. So this question is so crucial. What makes our life worth living? Absolutely. I'm, I'm smiling over here because um, I've, been, I've been kind of talking about my mom's death like this. She died because she didn't want to be in traffic. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. She was and, in treatment. And what does that mean? Yeah. That means she was in treatment in San Francisco. Yeah. And uh, we live in Oakland. Um, for those of you that are all over the world, it's not that far, but you have to go over a bridge and the traffic is horrible. Yeah. And so we would be going early for chemo uh-huh. and we would get stuck in the worst of yeah. it. Yeah. And it, she was having an okay time with the chemotherapy, but the traffic she couldn't bear because it was just yeah. making her so miserable. Um and- and so and, that was her quality of life decision. Exactly. That's what brought it to my mind. And, yeah. and I, I really back her up on that. She had a much happier uh, end of life, I believe, because she said, I don't want to do this anymore. Yes. And, and we need to listen you know, when people say that. Yeah. And she was, you know, there was some attempt to talk her down off of that. But yeah. she was like your mother, very uh, uh, determined. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And um, the I think we need to normalize and start start opening a bigger space for people to say no, because I've talked to enough doctors now, including Jessica, who basically say until someone else says no, you're likely to be offered treatment after treatment, even if it's a treatment that the person wouldn't want to visit on their own mom. So we need to normalize a space where it's okay for people to say, no, I choose not to go on to dialysis. I choose not to do another round of chemo. I choose not to have that open heart surgery that, in fact, uh, put me at risk of dementia. 
So that's that's a great, great, great spot to take our second break, um, and we'll come back and pick it up in a few minutes. Go to go to my uh, homepage at Voice America listeners and and contact me, and to find out more about Katie Butler and her wonderful book Knocking on Heaven's Door, you can go to katiebutler.com. K A T Y B U T L E R dot com. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of Return to Peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Katie Butler talking about her book, Knocking on Heaven's Door, The Path to a Better Way of Death. And, um, of course, I'm really interested in how these kinds of questions of how our lives end then impact the grief we experience. Yes. Um, because I know for me they do. Um, being, yes. being kind of at peace um, with all the major deaths I've experienced, you know, feeling as if the decisions were were um 
good ones and um, having that n- not being racked with some sense of terrible regret is helpful as Absolutely. a griever. Absolutely. And someone said to me recently, death is relational. Mm. And I thought that was actually a beautiful statement because sometimes the, the sort of the right to die movement argues a lot for complete autonomy on our deathbeds. And that's fine. But the fact is that the way we die will have ripples that go into the future because everyone around our deathbed is going to have an emotional legacy from that event. Intensive care unit deaths, for example, leave behind them high rates of post-traumatic stress, sibling conflict, depression, and anxiety, and also what they call complicated grief, where people just can't get over it. Yes. So I think the way we prepare for our deaths is part of our legacy to others. In the 1400s, the best-selling book was called Ars Moriendi, which means the art of dying. So people Mm. actually visualized and contemplated their dying process ahead of time so that they would be prepared. And so did the people who were going to surround the deathbed. They, were, they had prayers to say if people were suffering certain kinds of emotional distress. And we don't really do that now because we sort of say, well, I'm going to live forever. You know, the Botox is going to hold and, you know, I'm never going to die. <laughs> Good luck with that. I haven't yeah, ever, yeah, hasn't been yeah. true yet. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and and just to say a word, my dad did die in a in an intensive care, but uh-huh. it was not traumatic. Wonderful. Because he was brought, you know, by ambulance. He was it, there was no real choice. He fell. They took him to the hospital, right? Yeah. But they actually seemed incredibly relieved that as soon as we knew there was uh he wasn't going to come back. You know, yeah, yeah, we let go. That's and, wonderful. And they actually, I feel, did a very good job. They put us in a room with that closed up, which is unusual yeah. in an ICU. So we yeah. could be, you know, they left us alone. They let us sing. They let us do all that stuff. So if people do end up in a, an ICU at the end of life for whatever reason, yeah. it doesn't. I don't believe it does have to be as traumatic as it sometimes is. I agree with you. And there are some amazing theologians who come into hospitals, not just the ICU, but, uh, you know, a regular hospital room too, and really encourage people to bring in flowers, bring in music, create a little altar of a kind that really has meaning for that particular person and their family, that... We all want to die at home, but probably a bunch of us are not going to do so. So we need to bring the home into the hospital room. And also in some hospitals, they are developing protocols for exactly the kind of thing you're talking about. Make sure that the door closes. Make sure the room is warm enough. Make sure that every family member has a place <coughs> to sit. Yeah, simple, and- simple things that can get disregarded if you don't have a little piece of laminated paper explaining to you a checklist what you should yeah. do. And maybe most importantly, suspend the um, visitor restrictions. Yes. They let everyone we wanted to come in, come in. That's wonderful. And so I think, I think there are su- secondary traumas that happen because yeah. of those kind of rules that Absolutely. really do um, hurt people. 
Um, So we can work on that, too. And I do want to mention that you also curate Slow Medicine, uh, a Facebook page that that, um, people interact about these kind of issues. And I'm on that. I'm I'm a liker on that page, a follower on that page. And um, some of the things people talk about are just so valuable when it comes to thinking through these things when you're not up against them, because I think that's part of what we're talking about, isn't it? Exactly, and I just love this group because it's like a crossroads. It's a place where we can start developing a common language because there are nurses, doctors, caregivers, people with life-limiting illnesses. It's a, it's a wonderful gumbo of people from all walks of life, um, some with experience and some with expertise and very compassionate. I love it. Yeah, so people go check that out too. Um, I want to, since we're kind of moving in the direction of talking about the impact of all of these things on grief, I'd love yeah. for you to read the the section about um, after your mother died. Yeah. Um, she had a very different kind of death, didn't she? Yes. Yes, my mom watched my father go through this six and a half year decline, at least a couple of years of which was completely unnecessary and would not have occurred without the pacemaker. And she was not going to go down that road. And so when she developed leaky heart valves at 84, she refused open-heart surgery, which absolutely shocked her doctors. And she died about five months later after two episodes that were probably heart attacks. And her death was very swift. It was decisive, and she defined very much how it took place. She really took back her body from this broken medical system and did it her own way. And I really feel she died like a warrior. Now, my Mm. mom and I had had quite a conflictual relationship, a very close relationship, but also a lot of conflict. And I want to read to you about her. My brothers and I are at a funeral home where she's going to be cremated. And we wanted to look at her body for one last time before she went into the flames because we really wanted to create some some ritual and some beauty around the cremation process, which sometimes can seem a little industrial. So we put lilies in the cardboard box that held her, but we could not prettify her death. We'd asked the funeral home to dress her in her scarlet silk dye, but someone had put it on backwards. The fabric stretched awkwardly across her chest, and the delicately knotted frogs that she'd fastened herself lay unbuttoned at the back of her neck. Now that she was stiff, we could not make it right. Her mouth was pulled to one side. Her hair was shorn. Her skin was gray. The beauty and elegance that had awed and intimidated me all my life was gone. She was naked of the silver earrings and bracelets that she'd always worn, now dangling from my own ears and wrist. For the first time that I could remember, I was not afraid of her. I did not feel at peace with her death the way I'd felt at peace with my father's. She died too soon for my taste, though not for hers, just as my father had died too late. My goodbyes felt incomplete. I wanted to ask for her forgiveness, or better yet, to turn back the clock and care for her more tenderly during her final year. But time moves forward, not back. We had done our best. 
we had expressed in our own peculiar and broken ways our love. She had not been a perfect mother. I had not been a perfect daughter. It had not been a perfect death. And I would never live a perfect life. My brothers and I watched through a plate glass window as the cardboard box containing the remnants of her fine body, stripped of its temporal beauty, slid into the flames. The next day, the undertaker would deliver a brown plastic box to my parents' house where, for 45 of their 61 years together, they had loved and looked after each other, humanly and imperfectly. There were no bits of metal mixed with the fine white powder and small pieces of her bones. After her her memorial service, I would fly home and learn to say to my partner, Brian, I need you and I love you. I would undress my 60-year-old body in front of him and hear him praise my beauty, just as my father had done for my mother when she was my age. I would wear my mother's worn Japanese cotton bathrobe until it fell in strips from my shoulders. I would wear shoes that she bought at Marshall's during my father's depth watch, a half size too small for me, until they gave me a painful corn. I would vow that in the future, I would not wait for the imminence of death to say, I love you, thank you, please forgive me, I forgive you, and goodbye. I would cry, no longer afraid to love her and to miss her, no longer afraid to walk toward her, knowing that my tears and sadness were the beautiful flip side of the bright coin of love and of acceptance of the imperfect. I would no longer put all my life's coins into the basket of work and allow my fears to hold me back from loving. I would work the glass splinter out of my heart. I would remain myself. You know, I've read that a few different times, way back and and near times. It moves me so much. It's hard not to to cry, partly because um, it resonates for me with kind of the bumps and grinds of my own relationship with my mother vanishing... It's not that I don't remember them, but they've, yes. they've, they've exited our relationship. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, I, I find, I think she and I had an ambivalent relationship with each other from fairly early on. We approached each other and we avoided each other. We loved each other. We were passionate about being in each other's company but we often hurt each other's feelings or just plain annoyed each other. <laughs> and, you know, and now that she's gone, I, it's so much easier for me to also experience how much in awe of her I was, how much I admired her. Because we were, in some ways, very generationally different. You know, I was the daughter yeah. that went out and had a career and never figured out how to run a house or put up a ham. <laughs> and she was this uber housewife who could just do anything around the house. She was really a woman I of think, brilliant competence. And I, I think I think our, our mothers are uh, sisters, <laughs> and yes. we're going to have to end yeah. there for today. But I've really loved having you on the show, Katie. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure.
And and next week, I'll be talking with Marcy Bernstein. After career as a hospice social worker and her own husband's death from multiple myeloma, Marcy created endoflifewisdom.org and the column, Advice to the Living About Dying, to help people navigate the ends of their lives. I'm looking forward to that. Very, very um, connected to the show today. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.